This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Zoom Trips Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show, a deep dive look at the market with a, a really interesting researcher, Milton Berg, who's going to talk a little bit about his models for looking at the markets, what they're showing today, how he came to them, uh, got a really interesting history of working in the profession. Um, but Professor, you've been focused on the inflation narrative, the Fed, what's happening, and of course, we had a, a Fed meeting. So let's, uh, let's first kick it off with your, with your views on what's been happening. Yeah, uh, so uh, uh, I would say that although Chairman Powell did acknowledge that inflation is higher than he expected. He also said a high inflation may proceed for 12 months, while just two weeks ago in congressional testimony, he said higher inflation was likely to be just a six-month phenomenon. uh, His statements were still very much in the camp. This is temporary. It is not going to force our hand uh, too much earlier than what we planned, at least at this point. so uh, there was no real direct taper talk uh, scheduling, although a uh, board uh, now is on the record of saying we should be tapering by the fall um, and uh, not even by the winter. Um, so more Fed officials are, are saying that. Um, uh, I think it would take one or two more bad inflation numbers on the, on the CPI to convince the Fed to move faster on that. Uh, the next one is August 11th, where we're going to get July CPI. That's what I'm watching. Of course, next week we have um, the employment report, which is always important, but the inflation reports are more important. We had the PCE this morning. Uh, came in a little bit on the lighter side of some estimates, but remember uh, th- that is constructed from uh, the data that we know on PPI and the CPI, and as soon as those were announced, the, the uh, PCE deflator just jumped up. So um, it, it isn't too much of new news when we get the PCE uh, deflator. The one uh, glimmer of good hope on the inflation front that I see, uh, and it, it's uh, 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 at this point not established, but uh, that the money supply growth, in the month of June. Now we get that monthly and we get it at the end of the next month. So we just got June's data uh, um, was for the first time since the pandemic at a very moderate uh, increase uh, uh, over the previous month. We had been going up at a rate of 12.5% a year. So let's hope that continues, that money supply growth will be brought under control, but I still think 20% maybe even 25% cumulative inflation is in the cards the next two or three years. You talk to the CEOs, uh, their reports, um, I mean, uh, certainly stocks are blockbuster in terms of uh, over 90% of the firms are are beating their estimates, which I never remember it this high, uh, except maybe at a turning point of a recession of which we are not there. Uh, Recession ended in the middle of last year. they all point to higher labor costs. I mean, even Amazon, and, you know, Amazon is down 7% today. Um, it even mentioned, I mean, you know, it's the second highest employer, private employer after Walmart, um, that uh, it, it that employment costs are going to be a big factor going forward. These employment costs and wages are going to be put into the CPI index, and particularly in the service sector, but even in the manufacturing sector and delivery sector, they've got to be factored in. So, uh, you know, my feeling is that inflation is just beginning to move through the indexes. Um, first, uh, 
in the housing area, but also through the wages uh, into the service area. When you think about sort of what the implications for the markets we've been talking through, you know, if the Fed does have to start tapering earlier than expected, some some tremors. I think we have a guest who's a little bit more bearish the markets, but we're going to get that from from Milton. Uh, how do you think about that on on the market implications uh, through the remainder yeah. of the year? Well, again, uh, the the um, uh, the moderate inflation, which I consider you know five six percent, which I uh, see over several years, is basically good for stocks. Uh, they're real assets. Many firms are levered. In other words, they have bonds uh, and, and borrowings at extremely low rates, way below inflation. Uh, they've leveraged a lot of their contracts. I mean, a lot of their wage contracts are, are over a year. So uh, and certainly employees are going to be starting to demand cost of living compensation. But in the meantime, it's going to accrue to the profits of corporations before they have to catch up. And as I've been saying for six to nine months, I see corporations have no problem passing on higher costs. Uh, the uh, consumers have the money. So it's, 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 you know, they, of course, people wish they, they were paying the same as before. But, you know, when, uh, when, when I see them being, oh, yeah, I guess costs are up. Okay, I'll pay it. Um, at this particular juncture, uh, it's not that firms want to raise the cost, but their costs are going up and they will find it uh, easy to raise the cost. So my feeling is, is that corporate profits are still going to be blockbusters through the remainder of this year. Um, and, um, that's going to continue to drive stocks. Where else are you going to go? Yeah, the ten year is not giving you much. Uh, are you worried about the COVID Delta variant spreading now? Yeah, is that, I mean, is that... I, I was. I'm glad you mentioned that. I actually, um, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who I have mentioned many times, I think is by far the best in terms of an analyst and and a, and, a, and a doctor and an epidemiologist and former head of the FDA that that really is on top of it. Uh, he actually made a shocking statement this morning on CNBC. Um, he thinks that there's a million people, uh, Americans a day, that are now catching the Delta variant. Uh, uh, more than 10 times the amount that's uh, reflected, up to a million. The good news is that that means that in perhaps uh, three, four weeks, uh, middle of August, end of August, basically everyone will either be vaccinated or infected, um, and it will be over, um, or largely over. I mean, there will, there will always be an endemic amount of COVID, just like there's an endemic amount of virtually every other disease uh, that, that we know. But uh, that in terms of the wave, this is the last wave. But um, the transmissibility of the Delta variant uh, is extraordinary. We've talked about that on the show. Um, uh, not, uh, and and uh, basically, if you've been inoculated, you can catch it. But the symptoms are so low that he thinks that perhaps nine out of 10 cases are not even being reported um, right now. So. Uh, there's the good news and bad news. There, there may be hundreds of thousands, up to a million a day that are being infected, but the death rate is still extremely low. Um, for the unvaccinated, unfortunately, it's it's much obviously much higher. But uh, for the vaccinated, the death rate is still you know um, much less than flu, and and therefore um, shouldn't stop normal activities. But it will cause masking up. I mean, he was uh, saying um, if you're in a high incidence uh, period and you are immunocompromised, and, of course, children under the age of 12, which are not vaccinated, um, uh, if you're in contact with them, uh, you know, mask wearing might be appropriate. But, uh, you know, again, uh, seemingly imply this is the last wave, Um and it is a highly transmissible wave, um, and uh, won't stop. And it won't stop activities um, in September, where activities like school and and other events and you know major sports again start again after the summer recess. It's going to be very interesting, obviously, to see the next few weeks how it all plays out. Professor, thanks for giving our system commentary to start the show.
Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Um, we're going to be turning our conversation to Milton Berg, who's the CEO, Chief Investment Officer of uh, MB Advisors, uh, and it's a firm he founded in, in 2012. Milton has worked uh, in the hedge fund space with uh, with one of our actual uh, uh, original chairmen of Wisdom Tree, Michael Steinhardt, also uh, George Soros, Stranley, Druckenmiller, a lot of experience in this space. Milton, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Appreciate it. Um, maybe tell uh, our listeners a little bit about you know how you got started in the industry and and, uh, and and really your career, how you came to founding your new firm. Oh wow, I've been in this business for quite a while, um, a little over forty years. Um, I got into the business. I really got in as a typical uh, fundamental value analyst. I certainly wasn't a market analyst. Um, I certainly wasn't able to make any uh, calls on what the broad market would do. I did try to analyze individual stocks and uh, using the basic Graham and Dodd type, uh, which was in, very much in vogue then, still in vogue now for many analysts, but the basic Graham and Dodd type of analysis. And I got a little bit, a bit disillusioned early on in my career. Firstly, I saw that Benjamin Graham himself kept revising his, uh, his value measurements. He said if I worked in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, stopped working in the late 60s and early 70s. So he actually uh, he had, he had to make some changes in his basic type of, of value, value analysis. He, he gave more leeway to higher-valued stocks. But he really never got totally off his, um, his idea of value, so he really stuck to the value, value concept and the deep value concept. As you know, one of his greatest students, uh, Warren Buffett, became very successful once he broke away from Graham. He started buying good companies at reasonable prices rather than junk companies at very, very cheap prices. And, um, I mean, when Buffett bought Coca-Cola in the, in the late 80s, we were also all the value guys. I was one of them was surprised. Coca-Cola doesn't fit with the type of value stock that Graham would recommend and certainly that Buffett, we thought Buffett would, 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 would buy. But uh, things have evolved in this business. So I started as a value analyst, and I got the solutions. I, I felt there must be something more to this business. And, I, and also, I was, um, I was competing with other analysts, all doing the same thing. And there were thousands and thousands of these uh, security analysts. And I didn't have much of an edge. You know, the edge, I guess, is working hard. But I also found, when working with some of the great uh, hedge fund managers, in those days, they would get early information. I wouldn't call it inside information, because the, the, the laws about inside information were very, very vague at that time. But they were, they were first calls. It was actually a, a company called First Call. In those days, they gave the best clients the first call. Nowadays, it may, it may not be so simple to give a first call when you're giving information about a company. You have to disseminate it to everybody at the same time. But in those days, there was an edge that some people had and other people didn't have. If you worked for Goldman Sachs, you had an edge you didn't have if you're working for a small buy-side firm. So what happened is I sort of got introduced to technical analysis. I don't use the word technical analysis. I use, I use the word broad database market analysis both in analyzing individual stocks and in analyzing broad markets. So as an example, um, stock, like, stock like Microsoft, stock like Apple, stock like McDonald's, uh, 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 these stocks uh, came into being while early in my career in the, in the 80s, and no value analysts would touch these companies because they aren't not value stocks. But someone was able to analyze the company using both uh, fundamental criteria, what kind of business are they in, and what kind of product do they have, what kind of competition do they have, and also using uh, relative strength data, which has nothing to do with fundamental now, relative strength data, uh, breaking out of range data and so on, we're able to get into these great stocks early uh, and uh, make, make a lot of money on the, these kind of stocks. So in, in sum, I, I, I trained as a, as a value analyst. I was one of the original CFAs. I mean, I'm, I'm number 6,000 and change in CFAs, now hundreds of thousands of them all over the world. Uh, but I'm really basically now focused on what, People, some people find it's is, is not a real, real, real discipline, but the way I do it, I think it's a, a database discipline, and that is buying stocks and, and, and projecting market movements based on um, data, but not fundamental data, but based on, generally based on market data itself. 
So I mean, it's interesting well, talking about how Graham shifted in his own value criteria, and, and and there's been an explosion in computing power from when I assume you first started working on the technicals and charting and figuring out how to use that data to to predict the stocks to where information is so much more available today. Is there how would you say the your signals have had to adapt with this information? How much do you adapt your technical signals uh, in with all this spread of information? Well, obviously, the spread of information has been very, very helpful to everybody in this business. It has to have been helpful. I mean, people who do, who, who, who like in the business, people who manually calculate the spreadsheets. I mean, there's no such thing as, uh, as, as Excel. Uh, you know, it was, it was Lotus. It was the first one that started. It was called Lotus. But, I mean, people would manually spend hours and hours doing their spreadsheets using the slide rules. I mean, the world has changed dramatically. So there's no question that the data we have, the market obviously has to be somewhat more efficient in the sense that there's, there's enough data out there for someone who knows how to analyze data properly will be able to get, make the right decisions. While in the past, he may have had the brains or the intellect to analyze properly, but he couldn't get all the data. He just couldn't put it all together. Now you can get reams and reams of data it's pretty much instantaneously if you set up for it. So I think it really was very, very beneficial for the market. On the other hand, on the other hand, there was changes in the, in the market itself. Change, I mean, mutual funds, um, when I started in the business, basically there were the, the bulk of the investors was retail when I started, actually. In the late 70s, it still wasn't so institutionalized as it is today. It was retail, there were mutual funds. But now with the ETF and the futures, didn't have futures when, they, when I started in the business. With ETFs and with the futures and, and programs and uh, quant, quantitative analysis and quant, quant shops, the data that I use, some of the data that I use no longer works, and some of the data, and there's new data we've discovered based on the fact that the markets are, are more volatile, and markets, on a short-term basis, are more volatile in a sense, and markets, there's more data being thrown off by the market. So there's a, there's a trade-off, but I think basically the, the changes have been beneficial to both the fund, on the fundamental side as well as on the uh, market uh, analyst side, I would say so. Um, just given the sort of storied history of the, the the three names I mentioned in the industry, Mr. Steinhardt, Soros, and Drekmiller, anything from your days working with them? And you know, I know obviously you don't want to go too deep into them, but anything from from oh, your learnings working with them that's useful for how how it changed your look at the markets? Well, no question about it. Well, I can start with Michael Steinhardt. He's uh, I guess he's one of the original founders of Wisdom Tree. I mean, he's a brilliant man. He's a very intense market analyst. Very very intense. But he also made sure to get all the information that he could get about a company. I mean, if he, if he, if there was a medical company he just did, he'd hire a doctor and have him come to the office and give him the whole lowdown of the of the uh, of the disease and the project and and the, and the, uh, the what kind of medicines he have and what, what what these new biotech companies may 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 discover and so on and so forth. He's very big on information, but he's also very big in understanding the movement of stocks. Although Michael Starner, the bulk of his money really was made in picking good stocks and getting in on big movements early. But in reality, he had this idea that you really don't have to buy a small, undiscovered stock to make money. What he used to say was, even the largest companies, if you look historically, fluctuate 30% from highs to lows in any given year. And uh, if you, you, you take any great stock, you'll see that. Basically, if you look at the low, low of the stock for the high for the stock of the year, basically you'll see a spread of about 30%. These are non-volatile stocks. So he, he was very good, besides picking stocks, he's very good at trading stocks. I mean, he would constantly, uh, if a stock is declining, he'd buy, you know, 100 shares eight, or 1,000 shares every eighth, eighth, eighth down because he's bullish on the stock. He'd take advantage of every minor fluctuation as well as every major fluctuation. So basically what I learned from Michael Steinhardt is, A, very intense, make sure you get all the data necessary. He had very good analysts working for him. He used to quiz them sometimes three or four times a day on a particular stock just to make sure he got everything right. But I also learned about the market that you can really take advantage of stocks simply based on the natural fluctuation, which is not fundamentally based, even technically based. Every, every stock fluctuates, and he would make sure to take advantage of those fluctuations. That's more of a technical idea. So, yeah, that was, that was Michael. That was very, very good. Uh, Stan Druckermiller is in the class of his own, obviously, as everyone knows. Uh, if I could take, say one thing I took out of Stan Druckermiller is that he did, never got emotional about the market. He was always cool, calm, and collected. As you know, um, Michael uh, uh, Stan, I mean, has uh, publicly disclosed a, a difficult quarter he had in, in 2000, in March 2000, when he finally got into the internet stocks. 
just as they're about to top. I was there with him at the time, and the, the worst outburst I saw from him, he took a pencil out of his pocket and threw it against the wall. And I've been seeing training desks where you hear curse words all the time, and you were yelling and screaming and shouting and blaming. He kept cool, he kept calm, knew what he wanted to do after his analysis and, and did it. If he made a mistake, he'd just get out of that mistake, won't get emotional about it, and that's really part of his edge. There's much more to it, but I'd say that, that's what I learned from him, the importance of remaining cool and calm. Whenever I don't remain cool and calm, I make many, many, many mistakes. It seems like and, the opposite um, with Michael, right? Michael's books and uh, his own self-reflections were very much not that calm, cool, and collected character. Totally, right? totally opposite. Totally opposite. No question about it. No question about it. And George Soros, people don't even recognize. I don't want to talk much about George, but George Soros, he wrote many, many books about investing, many, many books. He, has, he, he, he also, you know, but uh, he was in his heart a technical trader as well. I believe I used to see him buy breakouts and sell breakdowns in currencies and in, uh, in inequities and in indexes which is something on a fundamental basis. There's no logic to buy a breakout. But it's breaking out. It's getting more dear. It's not getting cheaper. Why buy a breakout? breakout buying a breakout is a technical idea. Selling a breakdown is a technical idea. So I see even some of these great fundamental analysts, believe it or not, um, are somewhat involved with technical as well. I want to bring up something very interesting at this point. It, it just reminds me of something. Um, you, have you heard the term seasonality? Yep, of course. Have you heard anybody complain... What's, how can you make sense of seasonality? There's no fundamental basis for seasonality. Sell in May and go to the beach. <laughs> right? Sell in May, go to the beach, but they talk about the, the January effect. They talk about the Christmas rally. They talk about the summer rally. They talk about, you know, October is a very, very weak month for stocks. You've heard all this stuff. Seasonality. Now, not only does seasonality have nothing to do with fundamental analysis, and yet you watch CNBC, you watch uh, Fox Business News, you go to, go to conferences, and everyone's throwing out the idea, oh, now, now is a good time to buy gold, seasonal time for gold. Now is a good time to buy, not to buy, get out of stocks. But besides not being a fundamental basis for seasonality, the only logic for seasonality is astrology. I mean, there's, there's, there's 12 months of the year. You know, October is, uh, September, October is the beginning of the fall. The, the summer, there's no way to separate astrology or astronomy, let's use the word astronomy, from seasonality. Now, there was a great investor named Philip Carre. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Philip Carre, but he basically was uh, one of the original value investors. People know Benjamin Graham because he wrote his books and he, uh, and he taught in Columbia University. Or, but actually, Philip Carre wrote a book in 1926 called um, The Art of Speculation. In those days, the word speculation meant investing. There was no, it's as if he wrote a book called The Art of Investing. And he came up with a concept called basic value investing, basic value, which was basically the same thing as uh, Benjamin Graham's um, uh, central value investing, or it was value investing. And he was a, actually a very successful company. He generated, he started the Pioneer Group, which is a uh, nearly, I think they have a nearly a trillion dollar in assets worldwide. Current is still around. I mean, still crazy not around. But one thing he talked about, he also was bothered by his analysis. He's a pure fundamental analyst. They said, why is it that these market crashes all take place in September and October? I mean, he saw it, he saw it you know, in, in, in 1929, but he saw it in 62, and he saw it in 87. And he came up with this theory. He couldn't believe that it had something to do with seasonality, per se. He said, well, businessmen come back from vacation in September, you know, in August, throughout the world, except for the United States, everybody's on vacation throughout the month of August. The U.S. is not as accepted. But even still, in the U.S., basically, August is a vacation month. He said, when businessmen come back in September, that's when they really assess what the company's going to do over the next year. So when they're all negative, they all come back to vacation at the same time. They all turn negative, and they all sell their stocks, and that's why you get crashes at that time of the year. That's a nice theory, but the reality is that it doesn't really hold much water. And seasonality basically means there is some effective seasons on stocks, on, on indices. And I'm just, the point I'm making is that even those who are against so-called cycle work still accept the idea of, of seasonal trends. And there's no logic, no basis fundamentally for a seasonal trend. That's where they get that out there, yeah. because we do a lot of cycle work our own proprietary cycle work based on, also based on, uh, on uh, 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 non-fundamental factors. Cycle work, by definition, is a non-fundamental factor. It works for us. We're far more sophisticated than the type of seasonal uh, stuff you see and uh, uh, you hear about in, um, generally in this business. But uh, seasonality is, is, is not a major part of what we do. It's a minor part of what we do, but it's something that works, and we incorporate that in our technical work. 
Let me reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Milton Berg, CEO, Chief Investment Strategist of MB Advisors. We're just getting into his background on how he looks at the markets and this technical pattern. So, Milton, let's, uh, I want to get into how you w- look at all these different patterns and cycles, but let's, let's start with your bottom line today. I mean, I've been following some of your notes, um, and I believe, if I'm reading correctly, um, you have a bearish tone to the market, um, sort of sort of net short on some of your models. Is that, is that think, accurate? Yeah, is, uh, yes, that's accurate at this time. It's accurate this time. I don't want to make a, 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 an argument that the bull market has ended, you know, we're headed for a major bear market. I don't want to make that argument. I will say that's definitely possible. I would like to say, number one, uh, I think Jer- um, Jeremy Siegel, in the introduction to this, to this, to this hour, he talks about the, he sees a decline in the growth of money supply, and that is very significant for the bearish case because the money supply increase has been goosing the market. But there's something else that we track. Again, it's fundamental data, but we use it in a technical manner. It, it, we're actually, this is actually a fundamental data that we track. And we look at the money, growth of money supply relative to the growth of industrial production, relative to the growth of commodities, and a number of other, another other um, real factors in the economy. So when the rate of growth in commodities and the rate of growth in industrial production is, 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 is increasing at a greater rate than the money supply, it doesn't matter if the money supply is still growing. It's still negative for stocks because the money supply is being drained out of the money supply into commodities, into the real economy, into industrial production. So what we found is at the end of April, we found as, as COVID started March, April, May, June of last year, 2020, there's a major surge in the money supply, but you had a decline in industrial production. You had a decline in, in, in commodity prices. So you saw excess liquidity in the economy. Now you're not seeing excess liquidity. You actually see a record of negative liquidity because the economy is growing so quickly and the inflation rate is growing so quickly and the commodity prices are growing so quickly that is draining the money supply. And that has starkly been a negative for stocks. I don't have all the data in front of me, but going back to 1960, I think it has an 80% track record in calling at least corrections of greater than 10%, but also calling some great bear markets just by this data alone. Mm. So all the fundamentalists will tell you, wow, or even Jeremy said it, you know, I expect the economy to continue growing. That might be true for, for periods, but as it grows, it draws money away from the financial market. Because when it, if a company wants to expand, they don't buy their stock to expand. They actually... Um, they actually take the money and buy plants and equipment. It's when the, they don't expect the, 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 the company to expand. That is when they buy their stock. And so through individuals, an individual uh, small business owner, he may put his money in the stock market, but he's going to open a second restaurant or he's going to open a second uh, car dealership. He's going to take the money out of the stock market and put it to the dealership. And that is what we're seeing now on a, a call it a technical basis because we're just basically looking at rates of change of money supply, industrial production, and commodities. But that has turned negative in April, and in the past, that has been a precursor to major stock market declines. So that is one of the things we're looking at. Very interesting. He's been talking about the money. He's been talking about the money supply for a year. Um, you know, the M two money supply, the, the huge growth. That's part of his view that inflation is going to be hotter than expected. So I'll have to add to that hidden that color of the the industrial production and commodities overlay. As, as another thing for him to start watching. That's interesting. Yeah, he should start watching that. I know. I mean, he, he, why not? Now, there's another aspect to this as well, and that is I, I believe people think inflation is good for stocks. People believe. Well, let's t- start there. People believe inflation is good for gold. I believe they say that, right? Now, I don't know why people say that, because we know that gold peaked at $800 an ounce in 1975. It bottomed at uh, $200, $250 an ounce in, in, two, in the year, I think, year 2000. And during that period, the CPI gained more than 100%. So the inflation rate doubled, and, the, and gold was cut more than, more than half, into more than half, 250 from 800. So you, these ideas that certain assets are correlated with inflation, it doesn't really hold water. I've never found really true evidence for that. I know in cases of hyperinflation, if someone owns gold, he'll basically keep up uh, pretty much with the hyperinflation because – it's an asset that's a real asset, but in inflation of 5 6 7%, you really can't know. Sometimes gold anticipates the inflation, which, would happen, which basically happened in, in 1975. Another example is that we had, we had inflation from 19, uh, 1971 until 1982, which was not a great time to own stocks. That inflation was negative for stocks. You had, you had two major bear markets. You had a major bear market from 1972 to 74. You had a major bear market from 1980 to 1982. During that period, the S&P had a minor growth, but the Dow was basically flat. And on an inflation-adjusted basis, stocks 
they all declined over that period. So I'm not that convinced that inflation is good for stocks. I, I would like to make another point because inflation is in the headlines now. Everyone's talking about it. But is, is it transitory? Is it temporary? Um, Powell is suggesting we have not had inflation for the last 20 years. Well, I put some data together. I have my problems with the Federal Reserve, but that's probably not what you, you want to talk about at this time. But let's just give you some examples. Based on the government's own data, I'm going to list some uh, commodities or some, uh, some uh, things that people purchase and give you the inflation rate, annualized inflation rate over the last 20 years. Hospital care, 5.4% per annum over the last 20 years. Educational books and supplies, 4.5% per annum over 20 years. Tuition, 4.2% per annum. Uh, cable and satellite TV, 3.3% per annum. Restaurants, 2.9% per annum. Uh, transportation services, 2.6% per annum. Electric utilities, 2.6% per annum. The point being is that the typical person who's spending money has seen inflation for 20 years. And even looking at the CPI, and I have the, this is real data, but I have the CPI right here. Uh, the CPI over the last 20 years is up 2.14% per annum. Now, why would the Fed be so concerned about hitting a 2% target? Over the last five years, the CPI is up 2.43%. So they use the PCE, which was really set up by, uh, which is the personal consumption, which was set up by Alan Greenspan in order to allow the government to reduce the rate of growth in Social Security expenses. In other words, Social Security is tied to the CPI. They changed the PCE. PCE was adjusted to really fudge the inflation numbers, making it sound a little lower. But even the PCE over the last five years is 2.06% per annum. So the reason the Fed is so worried about inflation, first of all, is, is, is based on a mistake. When I first started the business, no one thought you need 2% inflation. The point of the Fed was stable money. Stable money means 0.00% inflation. Where did you get the idea of 2% inflation? But it became some academics who said, you know, we really can't gauge inflation properly. Maybe when you get a 0% inflation rate, it's really minus 2%. We can't really know for sure what the rate of inflation is. So let's go up to 1.5%. Then he said, let's go up to 2% so we'll be sure that the inflation rate is 0.00. That was what, originally what the intent was. But now for some reason it's become holy grail that the, the central banks over the world have to, have to have inflation. And the reason they say that now is because they know in any deflationary economy, with all the debt outstanding, basically governments and corporations and consumers won't be able to service their debt if they have to pay the debt in more expensive dollars, which deflation is more expensive dollars. So, I mean, this is what's going on. It's not so, it's not so clear. It's not so straight. The, 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 the central banks are fudging it. They're really just coming up with 2% because they're afraid of, of any deflation because of the debt outstanding. But the reality is they've been creating tremendous inflation, not for 20 years, but basically for 40 years. Since the U.S. government back in the early 70s, I think it was it, it President Richard Nixon broke the dollar from gold. In other words, foreign countries can no longer claim the dollar assets and gold from the Treasury. We've had inflation, major inflation, initially showed up in consumer prices in the 70s and early 80s, 14% per annum over that decade. But subsequent to 1982, the inflation showed up in capital market assets. It showed up in the bonds, bonds, bond prices, not bond, bond yields, bond prices. If you look at a zero-coupon bond purchased in 1982, and if you roll the bond every year to another zero-coupon bond until 2021, you gain 18% per annum. I mean, way outperform stocks. I know Jeremy Siegel likes to say that stocks always outperform bonds, but, you know, you, you, you have to compare apples to apples. In stocks, there's retained earnings, and there's uh, reinvestments of retained earnings. If you buy a bond and you retain the, 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 the income through a zero-coupon bond, you've actually outperformed stocks. For the last in nearly 40 years, and the reason is because of inflation. Inflation shows up in the bond prices. It showed up in housing prices. It showed up in stock prices. This great bull market began in 1982 took place at the same time we had a great bull market in bonds and a great bull market in in, in housing prices and a great and so on and so forth. So I believe that we do have inflation, and the inflation is created by the Federal Reserve. It's created by the central banks, and it has shown up in stock prices. And when he decides to start fighting inflation, whatever it is, be it this year or next year, once he starts raising rates, they will, they will do great in, in fighting the asset price inflation. I think they'll be very poor in fighting the CPI inflation because, um, as Jeremy Siegel says, and many economists are now saying, 
that's really baked in the cake. You're not yep. going to see prices come back down. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. This is Behind the Markets. I want to talk more about the, the clients at, at, at MB Advisors and who should be sort of looking for your services. But let, let's stay focused for the start here. You were just talking on inflation and sort of the, the taper and raising rates might be one of the negatives that hurts the markets and, and goes. But I, you know, following your notes, knowing you've been a little bit more short the markets, how do you think about like what's what other indicators are getting you to be more bearish? Is it is it the technicals, is it that fundamental story on the money supply versus industrial production and, and commodities? Is it just the whole package? How do, what, what gets you to trigger okay. to go short? Let me, uh, I'm going to get to why you get short, but first to the back end of why, why we were long. In other words, I don't want to give the impression that we're the so-called permit bear always finds a reason to get short. There's always a reason to get short. I, and, and at any given day, I can give you a reason to go short. So let's not talk about short at this particular moment. I want to start with, with why, why the reasons to be long. We had a major, major, major historical bull market that began about a year and a half ago. And I want to try to discuss the kind of things we saw, the kinds of things you look at that would, you know, that's bullish. So, for example, uh, um, going back to um, in September, we projected that the market will gain, um, based on our indicators in, in September, we projected that the market will gain uh, at least 21% within 12 months. In October, we project the market will gain at least 27% within 12 months. In November, we project the market will gain uh, between 30 and 35% within 12 months. And where do we get this from? Where do we get these projections from? Um, anyone can make projections, too. What's it based on? I'm going to give you a little bit about, about the kind of things that we do. So I'm going to go back to uh, September because I started with September, uh, September of 2020. And, and we, we had three bicycles in September of 2023. Call it market-based bicycles. Signal number one was on the September 15th. The Nasdaq had just declined 10% off its latest high. Remember, the Nasdaq peaked on September 2nd, declined 10% off its high. And it generated its low sometime within four to seven days prior to, to September 15th. So the market declined 10% and it stopped declining four to seven days ago. Now, the Nasdaq gained 1.2% for two days on higher volume of the S&P 500. Okay. So basically, any time in history, and this happened five times before in history, any time in history, the Nasdaq declined 10%, stops declining, and then it has, it has two days of gains in a row of 1.2% on higher S&P volume, the, 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 uh, the, the, the minimum gain over the next 12 months was 15.72%. Excuse me, the minimum gain was, was um, let, me get, let me give you the exact numbers. I want to get back to the table. One moment, I want to give you the exact, exact figure here. The, the, the median gain over the next 12 months was 23%, and we already gained 30%. That's to get our projections. We look, at, we look at this historical data, look at the median gains, and then we get our projections based on the median gain of this data. Another, that's, that's, let's look at an example in October. On October, um, on October, uh, October 20th, yeah, the VIX up seven out of seven days. Well, when the VIX goes up, it means people are basically betting on increased volatility, which means increased downside. Now, when you see the VIX gaining in price, Seven out of seven days, meaning all of a sudden everyone is convinced that volatility would increase. On day one, they think it increase. On day two, they think it increase even more. Seven days in a row. That's a technical indicator, not based on any fundamentals. It's just basically looking at, at the psychology of market participants. This has happened 14 times in the past where the VIX has gained in price for seven days in a row. And the median gain within 12 months was... 24.36%. So we projected a median gain within 12 months of 24.36%. We've actually gained 28.44%. So we have many reasons to be bullish. That's October. Then back to November, we have many reasons to be bullish in November. I'll give you, give you an example in November. For, it's all technical data. The people look at chart patterns. It's easy. To, anyone can see a chart. You get a little kid and show them a chart pattern. We get the data behind the market that you can only get if you have sophisticated data. If you have built over the years, built this computerized data so you can really see what's going on at a glance, and that's what we do. So we do what people try to do. People try to look at markets and, and, and project based on what they see. We look at the underlying data that the market is generating and see whether they have some sort of correlation to, uh, to, to future returns, and if they any, can make any sense out of it. So, for example, for example, um, as in uh, November 9th, 2020, the SP had just declined into October 30th. 
declined more than 5% and generated its lowest low six days ago. Then we have found that if you want to call market turns, you want to call it as close to a low as possible. It's very easy to, wait to call a bull market six months after it begins. It's very difficult to call a bull market six days after it begins. So we built our models trying to find aberrations of data or rare data that they generated within days of a market low. Now we found, in this case, six days after the S&P corrected, it stopped going down, the S&P volume on an update was the highest volume on an update over the last 30 times the S&P was up with high volume on an update. Sounds complicated. Let me repeat it. S&P was up on the day and volume was up. Okay? Now the question is, this high volume on an update, okay, it happens quite often the S&P is up on high volume. But we, we wanted this to be a unique period. This high volume is significant. It's significant because this volume was higher than any update in which there was higher volume for over the last 30 times, there was an update of higher volume. Basically, it's telling you that people were forcing themselves into the market six days after a low. Volume went up to such an extent that it was greater than the last 30 times the market was up on high volume. Now, this indicator, does it mean anything? Well, it's happened five times before in history, and the median gain over the next 12 months is 28.30%. So we said this is the reason to buy the market. So far, we've been up 24.55%, so slightly below the median. Now, you know, median is fine. You don't have to necessarily hit the median, but you want to get the trend proper. We got the trend, and we're almost hitting the median. That's November. So I'm going to give you a few more bullish indications, and then we'll talk about why we're turning bearish now. Let's go to December. Very easy. Very, very easy indicator in December. Anyone can see this. You take a broad index of, of, of stock. Now, we're not, we don't use strictly the SP 500. We're actually using a broad index, which combines big cap, mid caps, and small caps. It's about 2,000 stocks in this index. The next is created for us by the company that keeps our data. And we found over, over five weeks, looking at this index of 2,000 stocks, there were two times as many stocks up as down over a five-week period. Very simple. Two times, two to one. We actually looked each, each five-week period. We looked at the breadth over five weeks. We have five data points. And the average of the five data points was two to one. Now, this is a very broad indicator. And this kind of signal has happened 19 times since 1982. But it's basically telling you that there's such underlying force in the market that the market tends to trade higher. In this case, the median return over the next 12 months is 18.48%. We've gained 19.55%, so above the median. This is the kind of things we do. It's not conventional. Nobody else does it because nobody else has this data. Nobody else is convinced that this can even work. A typical fundamental analyst will say, well, what are you talking about? So what? So you had the five weeks of a, a breath to the one. So what? But since markets move based on people buying and selling, if you can analyze the data in the buying and selling, it can certainly give you some idea of what the underlying forces of the market are. Instead of people who are very easy to say, there's so much cash in the money market, that's going to go into the, I mean, that, that makes no sense to me. Okay, let the cash stay in the money market forever. If I'm showing actual movement into the market to such an extent that it's an extreme that's seen very rarely 19 times since 1982, and each time the market was up over 12 months with a medium of 20 of 18%, that tells you something more than just so much cash on the sidelines, the strictly the Fed is lowering rates. We try to get much, much more information. That's December. We, and let me make it a little quicker. We're getting to the end of the hour, but let's go now to, to the latest signals. We got signals in May. The last buy signals we got were in May. Now we're starting to get sell signals. On May 26th, the last buy signal, as you know, the, the NASDAQ declined 7% into, um, into late April, into, into May, it declined 7%. Let me just, uh, let's see, MP index GP. Uh, I'm going to bring it up on my computer as we speak. The, the NASDAQ just, declined. Um, I was just going to reintroduce you real quick so our listeners on, on, in the car know who we're talking to. We're talking with Milton Berg, CEO, Chief Emphasis Strategist of, of MB Advisors. Uh, let me you go back to you there, Milton. Okay, so NASDAQ declined 7.83% in 12 days into a low on, uh, on May 12th. 7.83% in 12 days is a pretty sharp decline. It stopped declining, and 10 days later, the Russell 2000 gained 1.5% in a day, and the S&P 600, which is the S&P small cap index, had eight times as many stocks up as down. This is a technical indicator we've created. Basically, you're seeing a NASDAQ decline more than 7% and stop declining. That's number one. You needed to stop declining to get a signal. It stopped 10 days ago. And on, on day 10, the Russell gained 1.5%, and the AD line of the SP600 was, was greater than 8. These are a very rare combination, which has happened four times in the past. And in this instance, the median return over the next 12 months 
was 42.68%. Now, we gained 5.39% uh, uh, so far, uh, maximum, and actually more. We actually gained more, nearly 6% since then, no, no, not the 42%. But this is our last buy signal, and we're a little skeptical about this buy signal. And let me tell you why. Because we're using a 7% decline, minimum 7%. In all these other instances, in each instance of the previous four signals, S&P declined more than 19%. The NASDAQ declined more than 19%. So it's quite possible this data is not going to work for us. So if it would be a strong signal, we'd say, we have no reason to be bearish. Now we're starting to get bearish signals. What are our bearish signals, okay? And that's what you asked me, so I'm going to answer the question. Why are we starting to turn bearish? What's changed? So I wonder, the backwards is still bullish. We still think even if we're bearish now, we may just get a sharp correction with the bull market continue. We're not convinced that the bull market's going to end, but we do think there's going to be a, a correction. So let, let's look at a few things. Uh, we, we looked at every market peak since 1966 in the S&P 500, any market peak in which it declined a minimum of 19%. We looked at every single one. And we tried to see the last time, which was uh, July 26th, the last time the, the S&P closed at a new high, we looked at a number of, of indicators. So, for example, um, uh, the 30-year T-bond, the yield has gained 56.91% over the last 12 months. Yields have risen dramatically over 12 months. Rising yield is a negative for uh, stock. Now, we know people are saying, well, yields have come down over the short term, but we look at the 12-month rate of change of yields. Never before has the S&P 500 made a new high, uh, a final new high, with yields gaining this much. The most we've ever seen was a gain of 32% in, uh, in 1981. So the yields are, are against the market. Long-term bond yields are up 56%. Another thing we look at is actually, as a technical indicator, the value line estimated appreciation potential. The value line is estimating that its typical stock will be up 25% in three to five years. That's the lowest reading since the 18% reading they had in 1968. So the S&P is making a high, and based on their way of, uh, of calculating fundamentals, they don't expect much of an upside. Um, uh, and and we, look, we have about 40 things we look at. I'm just pointing out a couple of them. Uh, another thing is very interesting enough. This is very fascinating, and people, we have such great momentum coming off the March 2020 lows. Very, 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 very great momentum. But what you see now is a, 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 a sort of a record low momentum as the SP is making a high. For example, the SP made a new high on July 26th. Yet, only 32% of stocks in Nasdaq are above the 10-week average. Never before, at a final high, were there so few stocks making. Uh, in other words, we're, we're seeing underlying weakness in the market as the SP makes a high. Normally, the SP makes a high, you see 50 to 60 percent of NASDAQ stocks above the 10-week average. Now it's only 32 percent. So too with the SP 600 is 27 versus a range of 54 to 78. Uh, so too the SP 40. So we're seeing a lot of underlying weakness. Another thing is something called the cumulative advanced decline line in NASDAQ that peaked in, in, in February. That's Calculating on each day how many stocks are up and how many stocks are down. Now, while the NASDAQ has been making higher and higher highs, the number of stocks participating has been declining. It last peaked in February, and it made lower peaks in February, March, April, June, and July. It just made a lower peak uh, yesterday or two days ago as the, as the NASDAQ made a high. So these are the kinds we look at. So I mentioned the, the liquidity issue with the, with, the, with the growth in industrial production and commodity prices. Um, I mentioned these technical indicators, but there are other psychological indicators that we look at. We're also suggesting a strong probability of a market peak. As you know, um, markets peak, maybe, maybe people don't accept this if you're strictly using fundamentals, but markets generally peak when there's a, an excess optimism. And markets correlate with high investor intelligence bullish readings. Markets correlate with low put call ratios, which means people are buying calls rather than puts. Markets uh, market peaks are, are, are correlated, uh, correlated with, um, with, with, with peaks in investor optimism. There's another way to measure optimism, and that's just to see how stocks trade. If they trade on the gap, S&P is an index with 500 stocks. NASDAQ is an index with over 1,000 stocks. If these stocks gap open, you know, it closes one day, and next day it gaps to a new, new high for the year without even trading back to the previous day's high, that's considered a gap. That's the sign people say, I must get in. I must get in. I must buy stocks. I'm not going to wait for the pullback. I don't care about the price. So the S&P just created an exhaustion gap on July 24th, a gap into the last time. We're now trading way below the close of July 24th. Um, it, created a, it created another gap in, in mid-June. And, and, and NASDAQ has created five gaps in a row 
without much move, moving post the gaps, which is suggesting that people are very excited about getting to the market, which is a reason to be negative. So in short, and, and, now, and plus the fact that the Russell 2000 peaked in March, March 15th. So we're now four months, or we're four or five months past the peak in the Russell 2000. We're, 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 the uh, S&P 400 peaked in, in, in May. So many broad indices have already peaked, already made the market peak, and we're assuming that uh, the money supply is going to keep the market up, or inflation will keep the market up. Well, it's going to keep the market up. Why can't it keep the Russell up? Why can't it keep the mid-caps up? Why can't it keep the advanced decline up? You say, why can't it keep the average stock up? So the reason is because as stocks make a peak, there's narrowness of the market. We're seeing that narrowness. We're seeing signs of a peak. So if you combine the, the, the monetary issue we have with the, the industrial production growth rate and commodity growth rate is draining, money, draining the money supply out of stocks, the fact that interest rates are up 50% on the 30-year bond over the last 12 months, the fact that it's in psychological, um, psychological um, uh, reasons that, that people still have to get into the market, and the fact that um, uh, um, uh, there's something else, we also measure psychology through the VIX, measures of the VIX, yep. So, and there are reasons to be negative. Now, I don't want to say that I'm negative because we, we still got a buy signal in, in, in March, April, and May. We still project higher levels. So either I'll be wrong about this, this sell signal here or the market will correct sharply and then rally back to new highs later in the year. We just take one step at a time. In final minute, minute and a half, um, give, a, give our listeners a little bit who should be coming to you for your services. A lot of uh, great data that you, you shared with uh, your approach. Uh, any final closing thoughts on how your what other services you do? I know you also do a, an individual stock portfolio that we, we didn't really get to yeah. touch on today, but but any sort of closing thoughts on who should come to you for well, your services? Well, the clients are those, well, all, all the clients, or most of our clients are institutional. We, 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 we're not an inexpensive service. Uh, many institutions use our data. Use our our, 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 our data based on uh, we, we write we write reports every day based on the current market data. It's it's exhaustive data. It's, it's it's very insightful. It's very helpful for many many people. And some people want to hear our opinions, but our opinions are secondary to the data because the data. If the data people could argue you got a buy signal in March, forget about the fact that you grade negative. I'll stick with the March buy signal right through a correction. We can make these, these decisions for people. But if you want to see something unique about the market, unique analysis, you're not going to see any place else. Really, no place else. You got to come to us. You get it. If someone wants to trial subscription, see what we do. It's just fascinating on its own, I believe. And uh, we have, you know, many, many great clients. Uh, we don't disclose the names of any of them, but many great institutions are our clients because what we offer is something that most people can't offer. Milton, this has been a great conversation, great profile of all the great uh, analytical work. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thank you, we, Thank we you. With, enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much. We, we, talking with Milton Berg, CEO of MB Advisors. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks, Patty Hall, our producer, Chris Tukes, sound engineer. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.